Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. I'm Deacon Lisa Vandenberg. My husband Tony and I are church planners up in Evergreen where we live, and we have a sweet little dinner church every Sunday night, but I come down here to help out occasionally, and I'm very happy to be here with you this morning and bring the word. Let us pray. Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak your words into our hearts. May the words of my mouth be pleasing to you and helpful for your church. Amen. So today is the second Sunday in Lent. We are journeying with Jesus towards Jerusalem. In our reading this morning, Jesus gives instruction about the way of salvation and expresses his longing for us to come to him. He makes a way for us, and he longs for us. In the first part of the passage, Jesus may seem harsh to our modern thinking. Understanding the context and the culture in which he was speaking may help a little bit. Apparently, according to several commentaries that I read, it was kind of common like discussion among the Jews, like who's going to be saved and how many will get in. And it was also common for them to think, well, the children of Abraham, the Israelites, most of us are getting in, except maybe a few who are really bad. And as far as those Gentiles, those other people, most of them aren't getting in, except for the really good ones that God fears. So when someone asked Jesus in verse 23, Lord, will those who are saved be few? He avoids answering the question of how many, but instead tells them the way to be saved, to strive to enter through the narrow door. When people get left behind and try to get in, he tells them that he doesn't know where they are from, meaning he doesn't know them. When they protest that they had meals with him and heard him teaching in their streets, again, he tells them he doesn't know them and tells them to go away, even calling them evildoers. By answering the question this way, he challenges their assumption that having the privilege of being born a child of Abraham will save them. Instead, he says people from all over will be at the table in the kingdom of God. So we don't live in a culture where there's pious Jews who presume to be the few who are saved, but I do think this story can remind us of the humility that God calls us to as we strive to enter through the narrow door, which I will explain in a bit. Just as being a child of Abraham was no guarantee of salvation in his day, being associated with a particular church or a particular group of people with certain beliefs will not guarantee salvation in our day. There is no place for religious arrogance in God's kingdom, and assuming that any of those people won't be able to enter through the narrow door. Jesus was angry with the Jewish leaders for not nurturing their people in a living faith. In the Anglican Church, we hope to be a faithful witness to the gospel and nurture an environment that shows the way to the narrow door of faith. But I have to be honest, coming to this church, hanging out with Anglicans, does not gain you entrance into the narrow door. So if being a child of Abraham or going to an Anglican church doesn't get us through the narrow door, what does? What is the narrow door after all, and why do we need to strive to enter it? First, we'll look at what is the narrow door. We can gain an understanding somewhat by looking at why Jesus says some people were not let in. It was because they did not know him. 
So we can conclude, perhaps, that knowing Jesus is the narrow door by which we are saved. Entering through the narrow door is knowing Jesus. I don't know about you, but this passage didn't really explain that all that clearly to me. So thankfully, we have other gospel accounts and the letters of Paul to help us out to confirm that. Joanna reminded us from the New Testament reading in Romans last week that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Believing in your heart would assume that we know Jesus, that we may believe in him. But the Gospel of John gives us additional insight into this connection of salvation and knowing Jesus. When Jesus is praying for his disciples in John 17, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the eternal life that we are offered in salvation is knowing God and Jesus. The Good Shepherd narrative in John 10 gives a little more complete explanation of the idea that the door to salvation is knowing Jesus. Jesus says that he is the shepherd who, is, who knows and is known by his sheep, who follow him because they know his voice. This paints a much more intimate picture of knowing him than, well, we heard you talk and we hung out with you a bit. And John 10, 9 through 10, Jesus also says that he is the door and that whoever enters by him will be saved. He says that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. This is eternal life. So Jesus himself is the narrow door, and we enter through it by knowing him. And salvation isn't just having eternal life after we die. There's not a checklist like, you know, when you're about to go on a trip and you have a list of all the things you need to do. It's not like, check, we've entered through the the door so we can get on the plane to heaven. It's the abundant, the abundancy of life that Jesus gives us in knowing him. And this begins when we enter the, the door now. It doesn't just happen after we die. Like a good shepherd, Jesus provides a way for us, and he longs for us to enter into it with him. This idea of knowing God intimately is not a new idea that we find only in the New Testament. We find many indications that this is God's intention from Genesis all the way through the prophets. He goes looking for Adam and Eve after the fall. He instructs the Israelites to love him above all else and with all of their being. He calls David a man after his own heart. And he tells the prophet Micah that his requirement for humankind is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. In the Old Testament, we have a God who reveals himself to be pursuing us. He desires and longs to be in relationship with us, his beloved and cherished creatures made in his image. Even when we turn away from him, he wants us. He makes a way for us and he longs for us. So if Jesus is the door that we enter by knowing him, what does it mean to strive to go through the narrow door? Some translations say make every effort to go through the narrow door. If it is by grace we are saved and not by works, why does Jesus tell us to strive or make every effort to enter through the narrow door? Now, this isn't the only place in the Bible that indicates that faith involves some kind of effort on our part. Why does Paul say in Philippians 2 to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? And why does James say in chapter 2 of his epistle, 
that faith without works is dead. The late Christian philosopher Dallas Willard had a good understanding of the relationship of faith and grace and effort in the Christian faith. He said that grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. In his book, The Great Omission, he says, The abundance of God is not passively received or imposed and does not happen to us by chance. It is claimed and put into action by our active pursuit of it. We must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. There is, of course, no question of doing this purely on our own, but we must act. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. I've always thought of the effort and in being involved in believing is kind of like being sent a free gift to your door. Now, I know this analogy could probably fall apart if we thought about it too hard, but <laughs> let's just say that you were sent a free gift that was delivered to your door by Amazon. You didn't pay for it or even order it, but it is extravagant. It's an amazing gift. You didn't even know you wanted or needed it, but there it is. The effort that we make to receive such a gift is as simple as bringing it inside, opening it up and enjoying it and using it. We may even have a really great UPS driver, like I do, who hands it to us at our door and gives dogs some treats. But the UPS driver cannot receive it for us. The striving for the narrow door is as simple as making the effort to receive and enjoy the love and fellowship that Jesus offers us and living in our lives out of that relationship. If the Amazon box just sits outside by your front door year after year, you have still been given a free gift. But eventually, something will likely happen to the box if it is not received into your home. Thankfully, the offer of God's gift of eternal life will last a lot longer than an Amazon box at your front door. As far as we can tell from Scripture, the opportunity to enter, enter through the narrow door is available to everyone until their last breath or until Jesus comes again. Everyone is invited Everyone is longed for and wanted and cherished. Jesus wants everyone to come through that narrow door. He wants to know all of us. As he says in verse 29 of our passage today, people will come from everywhere, from east and west and north and south, to recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And Paul affirms this in 1 Timothy 2 when he says that God desires all people to be saved. So what does it look like for us to strive to make every effort to know Jesus? The striving God calls us to is not like the anxiety-filled striving of the world to perform and gain acceptance or rewards. Basically, it's just spending time with Jesus and getting to know him. It's having a disposition of the heart to want to know him that loves him. In this season of Lent, we often do special things, to, to make this effort. We're, we're fasting together. And at all times of year, we could fast or we can pray. I hope we pray every day and multiple times a day. We study and meditate on scripture. We worship together, partaking in communion at the Lord's table. We can have fellowship with other Christians, spurring each other on, serving people in need, we do all these things in efforts to foster a deeper knowing of God and living out the abundant life that he offers us. 
These efforts don't earn us salvation, but it helps us to know him. One effort that I love to make is doing Lectio Divina and Emmanuel journaling on a regular basis with some friends. This is a prayer practice that Cindy and the Deacon Cindy and Lisa Elmers have taught us in the last couple of years that I think have helped many of us to know Jesus more intimately. Another example of striving to know Jesus and the abundant life he offers is the sexual integrity class that Stephen and Anna Froelich are offering and leading. It is a beautiful example of following the voice of our shepherd to a place of healing from brokenness and living into the freedom and abundance as God's beloved children. Of course, Jesus does not force us to enter the narrow door. He gives us complete freedom to choose not to know him. The next part of our passage shows us that he longs for us, even when we want nothing to do with him. He did not force himself on the Israelites, and he does not force himself on us. But he longed for them, and he longs for us. He lamented over Jerusalem, the city that represented the children of Abraham and the nation of Israel. He uses a tender image of a mother hen gathering chicks to protect him from danger. How humbling and awesome and amazing it is that the creator of the entire universe longs to gather us in like baby chicks. Now, I did not know much about how hens care for their chicks, so I read a little about it. A little bit about it. It's fairly common for them to gather their chicks in when it's raining or there's danger present. They apparently, little baby chicks are susceptible to, um, to cold and wetness, and you know, they, they'll get sick and die. So when it starts raining, they come running to mama, and she gathers them under, their wings, under her wings and keeps them warm and dry. Even in extreme danger, a mother bird will sacrifice herself by gathering her chicks. Tim Keller writes about this in his book, Jesus the King. He had read about forest rangers in a National Geographic magazine who surveyed the damage after a forest fire. One ranger found an ashy, ashy petrified bird huddled at the base of a tree. The ranger knocked the bird over with a stick and three tiny chicks scurried out from under the dead mother's wings. She had gathered her chicks and protected them in the midst of a fire. Jesus was lamenting over and longing for the city that was about to kill him. And he was undeterred in his mission to go die for us. In a similar scene later on in Luke's gospel, he says that Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Fellow Anglican Tish Harrison Warren writes about this weeping in her book, Prayer in the Night. Here, he weeps not in rage at death, but in the sorrow of unrequited love. It's a deeply maternal image. Jesus longs to gather up children and wrap them up in the safety and intimacy of his embrace, but they refuse. Busy and distracted, the bustling city turns away. Any mother who has had to sit and watch her child destroy himself, watch her beloved walk into destruction, abuse, or addiction, Watch as the one she sang over disappears into someone she doesn't recognize, knows something about how Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Unfortunately, many of us know the lament of weeping over a loved one who has gone down a scary or destructive path. Some of us have been the one that was wept over. It may be a child or a dear friend or even a parent or ourselves. 
But by the time we make it to our adult years, most of us know the heartache of longing for someone who is unwilling to be gathered in and protected. So take heart, friends. Not only does Jesus long for us, he understands our lament when we hurt for someone we love. And he grieves with us and longs for that person to be restored. This lament over Jerusalem and Jesus' longing for us is a theme we find throughout the Bible. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages in Isaiah that Stephen read for us this morning. Though God has told Israel that they will find salvation and repentance and rest and trust, they flee from him and try to solve their problems on their own. But he's not done with them. He waits to be gracious and to show mercy. In this passage, he promises to come to them when they cry for help and guide them in the right way to go. Jesus has made a way for us, friends. He became the narrow door for us to enter, and he longs to be with us. Let us make every effort to enter into that narrow door and enjoy the abundant life he offers in knowing him. He made a way for us, and he longs for us. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word that assures us of your love for us. Help us to enter into the narrow door and guide us in your ways. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.